I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, Michael and Jonathan grew up best friends and with loving families. Super high achievers, they both believed that their brains were somehow going to be their salvation. But then something happened to Michael. It took about three seconds of talking to Michael to recognize that he was not suffering from a socially constructed disorder. But the truth is, our medications are very crude. And later, the inevitable tragedy of good intentions, from the hallowed halls of Yale Law School to the pages of the New York Times to book and movie deals, Michael's story was embraced. But to what end and at what cost? It's not as if anyone told him he wasn't ill, but it was easy to forget, and maybe it even seemed like a kind of kindness. The psychiatrist caring for him, saving someone like Michael from the system, was their real goal. Jonathan Rosen's story of Michael Lauder, his struggle with schizophrenia, and what it means to do the right thing when treating those who are mentally ill. That's coming up on Life Examined. Growing up outside of New York City in the 1970s, Michael and Jonathan became best friends by 10 years old, and they had a lot in common. Both their fathers were college professors, and both kids wanted to become novelists. But it was Michael who stood out. Like an older brother, he was the confident one, charming and academically way ahead of the other kids. In his early 20s, however, Michael's story takes a tragic turn. After graduating from Yale, a psychotic episode lands him in a private New York hospital for eight months. For Jonathan, it was the first he learned about Michael's schizophrenia, and the first time he encountered the visceral nature of his illness and the enormity of his delusions. Spoiler alert for some of you who may be familiar with the story of Michael Lauder. The New York Times wrote about his ability to straddle both worlds, triumphing over his schizophrenia. Yale law professors argued that it was possible to accommodate those whose brains function differently. Hollywood even wanted to make a movie starring Brad Pitt. But the story ends disastrously, with Michael, in full-bloom psychosis, eventually murdering his pregnant fiancée and ending up in prison where he is today. Jonathan Rosen chronicles Michael's story in his latest book called The Best Minds, the story of friendship, madness, and the tragedy of good intentions. Rosen explores what happens to Michael and how a dysfunctional mental health system has failed so many like him. The book also explores how we got to where we are today, with jails and prisons replacing 19th century psychiatric institutions. Well, Jonathan Rosen, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Thank you. This is an, really an, an incredible story that is about more than just one life, but about the world of mental illness, of medication, of law, of, of so much. But I, I want to start with just your good friend, who is at the center of this, Michael. What was it like to be around him? What, what was his energy like? What was his mind like? Can, can you give us just a, a taste of who he was? Uh, well, sure. First of all, he was my best friend when I was 10, which is when I moved to New Rochelle, which is a Westchester suburb I grew up in. And I, we lived on a very short street that we shared. He was a little bit down and across. I always thought of it as the way a knight moves on a chessboard. Uh, and he came over and introduced himself. And even his introducing himself was very characteristic of him because he introduced himself and he introduced me. He knew my name. Uh, and uh, he was uh, extraordinarily precocious. He immediately called my parents by their first name, talked about Watergate, although <laughs> we were 10, as if he had taken it all personally and heard it all himself, you know. And he what i what i always felt about him was just he had enormous self-confidence and although he was this tall skinny kid like me there was a way in which he enjoyed taking up space uh we both had fathers who were college professors we shared an expectation that our brains were somehow going to be our salvation, our rocket ship, as I put it. I don't know why we thought that and what it meant, by the way. It wasn't an instrument that would help you do something. It was the thing itself. And, um, you know, Michael uh, and I, so we shared that, but Michael's father was born in Brooklyn and wore a leather bomber jacket. He was a professor of economics and had mm -hmm. a kind of booming manner. My father was a professor of uh, German literature. He fled Vienna as a teenager. His parents had been killed in the Holocaust. And so the energies were very different. And uh, Michael read at blistering speed and had a photographic memory. I don't know when used that name at the time, was dyslexic. So I was always 
kind of fudging it or compensating. I talked fast and I absorbed through my ears, but Michael would tell me the plots of all these books he read, although I read some of them uh, myself, I kind of absorbed his bookshelf. And in that sense, we were compatible. I didn't feel only that I was getting his story. I had a sense that how I listened was an aspect of the of the retelling in a way. And um, and I loved going to his house because he had brothers and everything was like a Darwinian scrimmage. My house, my sister let me buy the Monopoly tiles I liked. I let her get the ones she liked. It was an entirely different energy. And um, and then he enjoyed being there. I would sometimes find Michael talking to my mother while she gardened or sitting with my sister in the kitchen when she did homework, even if I wasn't there yet. Um, and he had a talent also for that, for kind of like leaving himself on people's doorsteps and getting adopted. Yeah. So uh, this is a person with an extraordinary mind. And, and and I wonder when you were around him at all, did you ever pick up any sense that maybe just beyond this brilliance or part of the brilliance, there might have been uh, a mental disorder just kind of like lurking there, ready, showing itself occasionally or at that age and in that time in your relationship, it just wasn't really present? Um, if it was present, I certainly didn't notice it. And one of the reasons I decided to tell the book, despite the fact, as you mentioned, that it is about many, many things, and I have to pass through many layers and many extraordinary things happen to Michael, but I had to start it in childhood because I, first of all, didn't want it to feel uh, that there was a tragic inevitability always present. Mm -hmm. I needed to go back and recall what it was like simply to be with him. Now, maybe 10-year-old boys, certainly I didn't. You don't scrutinize in a way. There was very little drama. Was he mean to me? Was he nice to me? It didn't really matter. We were just, he was just there. Uh, it is the case in retrospect that he, because he read through all the required reading in fifth grade, we had these little SRA pamphlets almost, which I loathed. Um, he read them all right away. So he was allowed to read anything he wanted. And he kept paperbacks, books on his desk, big stack of them. And he read them all at the same time. I always thought of it as like Bobby Fischer playing chess with all these people because we were still in the age where he had had his Cold War triumph, Bobby Fischer, that is. Yeah. But I mean, he would not finish a chapter. He would read in one book and then he would seamlessly start reading in another and then in another. In retrospect, of course, he was assembling some hole, I guess, or some patchwork. But um, but none of it ever seemed um, out of tune. In fact, I was much more focused on my own disabilities, which I would never have called that because my expectations were as grand as his. But my mind always felt like it required, if not an explanation, a, a, a certain amount of subterfuge, let's put it that way. Whereas his mind seemed all overtness because he could summon a passage from a book he read and recited. I worked hard to memorize things, partly because I didn't like reading very much. So I yeah. take out, took out records, but I, so I had my little portable library of poems, let's say, but for Michael, there was a totally different way. And as a not as a result, but in addition, he stood forward almost like he was an orator. When someone stopped the car in New Rochelle for directions, I instinctively took a step back because I really could get lost at the foot of our tiny street. Michael <laughs> would stand up, look around and give the kind of directions that knowing adults gave. Mm. Go left, don't mm. go there. It's much quicker to go the other way. And in the same way that, I always thought it took a family of four to change lanes because no one in my family was a good driver. Michael's father just drove at breakneck speed. And so yeah. there was that sense of mastery of, of technical things that he also inherited and the habit of knowing mm -hmm. that almost maybe preceded being certain what the answer was. And yeah. I envied that a lot. So then when did he experience his first you know, psychotic episode or instance of displaying what we would later learn was a case of schizophrenia? Well, we were both going to be writers. Michael graduated. We both went to Yale. Yeah. Michael graduated in three years. Uh, he was recruited by Bain and invest uh, a management consulting firm. And it was just the age of uh, when management consulting firms and then the business schools that adapted themselves to that style were coming into their own. And as he told me, you know, the very smart could become the very rich by talking about things they didn't 
really know hmm. about with enormous confidence. And that was like a tailor-made job for him. Um, but And the plan, he had a 10-year plan. They were going to make a ton of money in 10 years, and then he was going to live off of that and write. I hadn't figured out how I was going to get to do that. The writing part, I always knew. Um, but after the first year, he um, he began to feel that his phone was being tapped. He This only came out later that, you know, he felt, he, he got a glimpse of the secretary who suddenly had fangs and long nails and blood dripping. Mm. And you can talk about how people are out to get you without it being an overt admission of paranoia, especially if you yourself don't know it. And so it really took several years. He left after about a year and moved into the attic of this wonderful grand house owned by psychiatrists, which he called the Gatsby house. And so as far as I was concerned, he was just he cut short the 10-year plan. It was a one-year plan. And he was up all night writing stories, which is what I wanted to be doing. It did not occur to me that he had left because he was starting to see Nazis in the streets of New Rochelle. Hmm. Although if he had told me, since my grandparents, you know, I'm named for someone who was murdered, that was just another day at the office. It was Michael who you never thought was going to see Nazis anywhere because he had this kind of rooted American confidence. So for it went on. I was not the only person, and I was not really much in touch with him then. He had said to me right before we went to college, and whether this was a little premonition or not, I don't know. He said, I don't think we'll see much of each other. And I said, why? And he said, well, you're just too slow. Huh. And um, and I, I felt I had finally caught up. I passed my driving test. But the point is only that it felt deeply disconcerting, but I certainly wasn't attributing it to anything other than just, you know, that the hair got tired of having the tortoise in his rearview mirror or not having him there. But in mm -hmm. any case, my father called after it was about three years later. I'd, I'd been a graduate student. I'd gone to Berkeley uh, to get a PhD in English, although I had left, um, but I hadn't left yet to tell me that he had seen Michael looking very distressed. And he would wear he was wearing the remnants of his fancy management consulting clothes. And my father was always a little bit wary of Michael and also deeply uh, like charmed by him. And Michael was very clearly uh, distracted, said almost nothing. And a couple of days later, he heard, he ran into Michael's father and learned that Michael was in a psychiatric ward of Columbia Presbyterian. And I immediately, and so he called me. My, both my parents called me. I thought they were calling to tell me someone died. They were, it was rare they would both be on the phone. And immediately I felt it, although I hadn't been much in touch, as if it was a, a sibling. You know, that was that primal childhood connection. So at this point, his life, of course, is now taking a, a pretty, a pretty drastic turn from the brilliant young guy who could go off and do anything. And if you can remember that period, and you did a lot of research about this too, about what, what the world thought or how it is that that psychiatrists made sense of schizophrenia at the time. I mean, what what did you learn in terms of what he was going through, where he was placed? And that entire world that is was created to somehow contain or understand more severe mental illness. Well, what's interesting is that the I learned only later. I knew nothing about any of it, of course. Uh, but um, th there really wasn't much of a world that was there to serve those with severe mm. mental illness. Um, he would not have been. Uh, hospitalized for the eight months or so that he was hospitalized for, had his father not talked him into signing himself in, partly by convincing him that if he didn't, he would be committed, which I think is very unlikely, actually. Um, and that's a whole other story. It's also, M Michael was in a private, that, the Columbia Presbyterian is a, is a private hospital, at which he told me it, it cost more than Yale, is what he said. Um, it was, however, first of all, I can tell you the encounter itself with Michael hmm. when he was in the hospital. I'd never heard the term locked ward before, and it really was locked. And that was in itself a, a shock. So was his, he was deeply familiar and totally transformed. Whether it was by the medication they'd gotten him to take or not, I don't know. But it was having heard from my mother when they, my, both my parents called to tell me he was ill, that he thought his parents were Nazi replicas who had killed his actual parents and that he'd patrolled the house with a kitchen knife. I mean, the idea, and I could hear how frightened my mother was just by the uncanniness of it. It sounded like a horror movie. 
How is it? And Michael was such a rational person too. And so the idea that you might imagine something about your parents, the most primal attachment of all, that they were aliens, was something very hard to come to terms with, or just, it wasn't about thinking about it. It was what I felt. And it happens, I was in graduate school at the time where for some reason you couldn't study English literature without reading Foucault's Madness and Civilization, mm. which really describes mental illness in all its forms as something entirely socially constructed by the state as a way of oppressing anyone who's different, who's at odds with the Enlightenment regime. And so the one thing I can say is that that was fine if you're just studying literature. It took about three seconds of talking to Michael to recognize that he was that he was not suffering from a socially constructed disorder. That doesn't mean how we understand the world and what our society is like doesn't play its role. But the visceral quality of his illness, the denaturing aspect of it, and then how he himself spoke about both the illness and what had happened to him and how little people could help him in a way that might have been filtered through his delusions. But the truth is our medications are very crude. He described himself as a television set that people just kept whacking on the side. Um, but there was also, he was lucky that he was, as I say, there for so long because in the when we were freshmen in college, that was je- which was 1981, that's just when the aftermath of what's known as deinstitutionalization was visible everywhere. Remember a woman, a woman froze to death in Manhattan in a box and no one knew her name for a time. And she was just called the lady in the box. And um, it was one of those shocking moments where everyone thought, how is that possible? Just, mm. And and this explanation was, well, she liked being in a box and we didn't want it. We were, we were mindful of her rights, said the man in charge of some public role that had to do with caring for those who couldn't care for themselves. The idea that honoring her autonomy involved letting her die was the first little like not little, large encounter with the fact that something had gone wrong. And so it's a, it's it's hard to shorthand it because as as the subtitle of my book says, a tragedy of good intentions, the desire for improvement was great. The mechanisms and methods and changes in culture and law and medicine all at the same time were disastrous. I want to get into this a little bit further because I think this is a story that that's not very common because I think there's just, well, there's so much about mental illness and the institutions where that's treated that is unknown to almost everybody. But there was this idea, you know, decades ago of, I mean, to use a crude world, these insane asylums, I don't like that, but, or institutions where people were put and they were spooky and big and, you know, we still kind of hear about their remnants. And I, I want you to talk about what those institutions were. And then in this kind of Kennedy era, you know, post-World War II and even more recent, there was there was this hopeful shift. And those institutions were supposed to change, or maybe as you'll tell us, close, but maybe give us a sense of what that that progression was like, because I don't think it's very well understood. Oh, I agree with you very much. Um, it certainly wasn't understood by me. And I also think there's a tendency to look at those hulking remnants you know they're like Mm. castles that have from some forgotten age um and to think that they were always ruins and to see them through their ruined state but i think so one of the things i had first i had to discover what they really were and how what condition they'd fallen into but i do think it's important to start before they existed and to realize that there was a time in the 1800s when people who had severe mental illness, even in the early, you know, like 1830s, were considered sometimes possessed, that you had to beat the devil out of them or chain them into basements. Those were the original snake pits or live on the street. Dorothea Dix, who was a great reformer out of a Protestant uh, reforming tradition, uh, had a father who had been homeless and not just homeless, but um, had wound up in that condition. Uh, for unspecified reasons, but it seems he was more than an alcoholic, which he was as well. And so she went around to every governor in the country and persuaded them that any civilization worthy of the name needed to have a place that gave shelter to people who 
were ill and that they were ill, even though there was no real good diagnosis or cure. It, they, it was not a moral defect. And in fact, what was offered by these places that indeed she succeeded in persuading states to build, what was offered by them was called moral care. And they were designed to be airy and light. And th they were beautifully landscaped. Olmsted, who designed Central Park, designed yeah. many of them. In fact, he designed McLean's, where his family then sent him, when he himself became demented, whatever that meant at that time. But th it was believed that you would work the earth, that you would garden, that you would be away from cities, which were thought to be you know, inimical to good mental health for everyone, and particularly for those who might develop it. And so there was an impulse behind it that was a true notion of asylum, that it was a place to protect you from the world and perhaps others from you if you were not able to care for yourself or distinguish between what's real and what's not. And remember, there were no medications mm. at all. But of course, again, you'd have to give the, that. So that's in the 19th century. A hundred years later, many things had happened, you know mass immigration and movement to the cities in great numbers families were couldn't care for the odd member of the family who may or may not have had an illness but so other factors were there people lived longer so older people who had dementia were there it did not used to be like that that was not the goal and um, meanwhile science had medicalized and so there was enormous pressure on alienists as psychiatrists were called to actually do something medical not just they were disparagingly called gardeners by neurologists both because of the gardens that they often that these places had or farms but also because they were sort of tending their patients and so um, but but a hundred years later, by the time, as you say, John F. Kennedy, uh, whose sister had uh, was had been born with what we would call uh, uh, retard, she was retarded from birth. The, the term, the, an intellectual developmental disability, was was simply called being retarded. She right. then developed what may well have been schizophrenia. She began to develop aspects of psychosis, and her father. Joseph Kennedy gave her a lobotomy without consulting the family. He was the ambassador to England. He was afraid she was running away and coming back with leaves in her hair. He didn't know what might happen. And, and that had a devastating effect on John F. Kennedy, who was very close to his sister, uh, and to his sister Eunice, who was the real engine of much of these changes. And, and what was interesting is it combined um, community care for people with intellectual disabilities, whatever term we use today, not the term used then, and people within mental illness. And the last major piece of legislation Kennedy announced was uh, the Community Mental Health Care Act, mm. which, as he said, was going to replace the cold custodial care of the asylum with the warm embrace of the community. It took me a long time to get to where I might have started answering your question. A beautiful yeah. vision, but the communal care was not, in fact, devised to take care of those who had formerly been hospitalized in whose name community care was created. Mm. It's, it's a kind of an incredible progression because I think that these old institutions were, if you look at them now, if you come across them and, and they're shuttered, as many of them are, they look like these spooky castles, right? And I think there was this depiction and maybe this was through Hollywood or film that, that, you know, this is where people were like tortured and they were, there was madness and it was crazy. And, but it's amazing to me to think that they were started with somewhat of like kind of good intentions, almost like humanist ones, like put someone in a healthy, safe, environmentally foreseen environment. And there can be an environment in which one can heal. But it sounds like over time, those institutions, maybe I, I gather were not, upholding those values and that the results whatever that we define them to be weren't exactly coming to be is is that right that's right i have an amazing book it's photographs of the ruins of all like all of these state hospitals all over the country and every state had them hmm. the introduction however is by oliver sachs oh, and he hmm. mentions his brother who had schizophrenia and he mentions how his brother did find asylum in, in hospitals, at, uh, that he required that care. And he required the, the one thing that we don't give people in the modern world is time. And, um, and they gave you time as well. Um, and so it was very interesting. He was, he was very open and honest about all that had gone wrong, the overcrowding and much worse. 
But it's also the case that in the aftermath of the Second World War, everyone was primed to see certain horrors and um, and to do something better, which and and with grand ambitions that we might do something better. Hmm. And and that's and that's really important to realize because there was no simply there was no medication. And um, and so the dominant idea, the dominant form of psychiatry was psychoanalysis. The yeah. people who exposed the state of psychiatric hospitals in the after-war years, in the post-war years, um, were conscientious objectors. They were mostly Quakers and Mennonites who'd been sent for alternate service to work in these understaffed state hospitals because not only were they now overcrowded and even more overcrowded because of soldiers who were discharged, but half the people who worked, half the staff had been drafted and they were there. And for them, it looked like a concentration camp. And they smuggled photographs out of naked, skinny people crowded together. Hmm. And the, and Life magazine ran it, um, it as if it was, you know, here they they were conscientious objectors, but they'd liberated a camp at home. And Irving Goffman, who had a huge impact on the way we viewed uh, state hospitals, psychiatric hospitals, uh, like in 1961, wrote a book called Asylums, and he spoke of total institutions. And he mentions state hospitals, uh, psychiatric hospitals, and concentration camps. And so in a way, it was the ready metaphor. And the only reason I mention that is because it's easier to demonize and tear down something as if it was the Bastille than it is to reform it. And they mm. were already starting to reform in complex ways again. And part of the tragedy was also this enormous impulse to simply say, we're going to start something new. The problem is by the time we started something new, mental health as a term was totally broadened, fungible almost, as it is today. So instead of the three or 4% of the population who are severely ill in certain ways that keeps them often from knowing they're ill without intervention or care, um, it, it became a, a, a definition of like half of the population and half of the population probably needs care of any of all kinds. Yeah. I certainly do, but it's a different kind. It's like you don't knock down Sloan Kettering Cancer Hospital on the promise that mobile cancer centers will take its place mm -hmm. and then call them mobile health centers. And these were community mental health centers. And that is another one of those things that happened along the way that betrayed the very people in whose name change was made and that people who spoke least for themselves, who by and large didn't write books about what was happening to them or have a constituency or even vote. Mm. And that was also part of the tragedy. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and you're listening to Life Examined on KCRW. My guest this hour is Jonathan Rosen, author of The Best Minds, the story of friendship, madness, and the tragedy of good intentions. We'll be back with Jonathan Rosen in part two of our conversation after this short break. Stay close. This is KCRW. Introducing the KCRW donation car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. My guest this hour is Jonathan Rosen, author of The Best Minds. As we're about to learn from Jonathan, Michael Lauder's story is a cautionary tale, a failure by mental health professionals to recognize the severity of his illness with the hope that Michael could function autonomously without psychiatric care. In the end, Michael would murder his pregnant fiancée and end up in prison, which has become the container for thousands with mental illness. As we dive back in, we'll find out what happens at Yale Law School and what made it initially the perfect fit. I want to jump back now into Michael's story. At this point, you talk about he graduated from Yale. He tried to hold down a job with his 10-year plan to make money and become a writer. But he is he's now experiencing the full symptoms of, of schizophrenia at times. I mean, where does his life go from here? Because, I mean, this is still a brilliant guy who I know is going to end up in this book at, at Yale Law School, and life is going to continue on. But bring us back into his story now. Well, what's extraordinary about it is that as he was in this prodromal period, as it's called, before you're 
fully inside of your psychosis before you before the disease had fully presented itself, uh, he took the LSATs, did amazingly mm. well, and applied to law school. Then he had his when he had his psychotic break, he was in the hospital when he learned that he had gotten into every law school he'd applied to and told his brother to to, to reject them all, as he put it. You know, you oh, that was a feature of his brilliance too. You reject the school, um, but to defer Yale. And so while he was spending eight months in a hospital, he, he was deferred, he had deferred. And then while he was in a halfway house, I think he deferred a second time. But then the story he told, and he was very good at putting his life into stories, which was both a wonderful thing and in certain ways, a, an unfortunate thing in a way, because a story makes everything sound complete. Um, he told a story about his father. He was, it was suggested that he get a job at Macy's or a supermarket, something small and simple and slow while still recovering and, you know, readapting himself to the world. But his father took him to the Macy's in Manhattan. Literally, it says the biggest department store in the world on the outside. Mm. And they both quickly decided that the stress of working at a returns counter was worse than anything Yale Law School would throw at him. And so he decided to go to Yale Law School, and they didn't ask him to reapply. Um, and they took him, and he went. And that was an amazing chapter as well, because um, in a sense, Yale Law School offered him for a few years what a con what the old asylums were meant to offer. You know, the world was walled out. There's a beautiful interior, and you're given a kind of time. Now, I don't think a lot of people experience law school that way, but he had remarkable mentors, interestingly, law professors who in the 50s and 60s had clerked for a judge who had changed the institutional, the laws of institutionalization. So for them, it wasn't neutral. They were steeped in psychoanalysis. They were also extremely good people. Mm. And they quickly understood, they saw him as brilliant, but they also recognized that he couldn't do the work. And so it was an accommodation somewhat at odds with his own self-perception, because one of his professors told me, you know, I, I didn't think he would become a Yale lawyer, but I thought he would become a spokesman for people with schizophrenia who had been to Yale Law School. But Michael had said to me and to others, why would I work at Macy's when I can be a Yale lawyer? Being a Yale lawyer was, in fact, the whole point. And so, again, the, the good intentions, which were, you know, to sort of allow brilliance in some generic unspecified way but palpable way to take the place of the, of the actual of the work itself was kind of almost by unspoken agreement an aspect of what it meant for him to be there not that i understood that at the time and while he was there he he was still hallucinating i mean one professor asked him if he ever hallucinated he said oh yes I, right now i can see angels waving fiery fronds in the distance. And wow. the, prof the professor said to me, I had a, it occurred to me, maybe he was just, you know, inventing this, but he said, I decided to believe him. But in a funny way, it's not only was he not inventing it, it's rottenness. It sounded like a figure from Dante's Inferno almost made it all feel like it was okay or polished. The same person who then became Dean of Yale Law School said to me, you know, if I hadn't spent so much time thinking about what a great place Yale Law School was for being able to take Michael, despite his illness, uh, I might have spent more time wondering or thinking about how he was feeling. Mm. And um, and that's also just a kind of tragic aspect. It doesn't make them responsible in any way for what ultimately happened, except there is a way in which all these small accommodations and instances of goodwill where people were sort of filling in his story for him, were writing a, a story ultimately at odds with where he was at that time, and therefore with what maybe with what he needed mm. in a way. What, what strikes me as just really interesting about his story, and one that I think maybe bucks this very crude sense of mental illness that we all have, which is you're you know kind of possessed and taken off into a different world, is that it seems like he was somebody that was able to kind of keep one foot planted in what we think of as a shared reality, but another foot that was clearly in a world of mental illness. 
And he was somebody that could talk about the fact that here I am, right, at, at the highest reaches of a law school, trying to keep up with the work and being present in conversations, and I'm seeing angels in the corner. Like, that, that strikes me as just a really unusual place to be in, and one that I think might be hard for us all to understand. I think it's it's very hard to understand. I mean, he was taking, for the times when he was taking medication, he was able to maintain that balance. But it, it's also possible and maybe it's an awkwardness i felt at the time he couldn't get he couldn't get hired he wanted to be a law professor he couldn't get hired he was told by his professors to conceal his schizophrenia his professors were mainly the people who knew although he then told uh, classmates but so he couldn't get hired because he couldn't answer the question why did you never clerk for a judge or why didn't you work for a law firm he had one ill-fated summer um so then the following year, he decided he was just going to come out, as he said, as a flaming schizophrenic. Hmm. Um, and he wasn't hired, but the New York Times wrote a profile of him, a, a very heroic profile. And uh, in the profile, he actually says to the reporter, you know, 70% of my energy is going into just trying to maintain reality contact with the world. Um, but what was interesting about that is that he was also saying, I see myself as a candidate to be a law professor. And so either that meant 30% of my mind is, an, is, is sufficient or no one was quite listening. In it, or what I really think is the case is that he described so beautifully the muffled experience of, he didn't say whether it was the medication or the illness, which in itself is a complicated aspect of what it meant for him to be ill and medicated. He all, mm. you know, but in any case, uh, he described it so well that it seemed that the description was itself the evidence that he could in fact do anything in that way. And so likewise, he, he was sometimes asked when interviewing, because he, when he spoke about having been hospitalized, have, being paranoid and having schizophrenia, if he ever became violent. And he, again, he explained to the reporter that it was a very hurtful stereotype. And I, I know that it is a very hurtful stereotype, and it is, but it, at the same time, I knew he thought his parents were Nazis. And not out of ill will or violent tendencies, but simply out of self-preservation, he has felt it necessary to arm himself. And so I felt awkward reading this amazing profile because I kind of knew things that didn't feel right, but didn't know if it was youthful envy. And, and anyway, the story then led to Hollywood buying his life story and publishing houses bidding for that same story. And having been told to conceal his illness to get hired, although that didn't work as a professor, it was then exhibiting his illness that earned him more than $2 million from publishing in Hollywood. And that must also, that was also a very unusual dynamic to say the least. Well, I wonder if you can now just kind of take us into what would be, you know, a really distressing, I don't want to say last chapter, but, but, you know, the, the illness progresses and the coda of your book, in a sense, is that he would go on to, unfortunately, you know, commit a very, a very violent crime. And maybe if you can walk us up to that point and, and tell us exactly what happened and where that would take him. Well, yes, it's in a sense, the whole book is bound up with how it could happen and why. I mean, I began the book obviously knowing what happened. But in a strange way, the more I thought about it and talked to people and learned more, the more it almost felt like a murder mystery, you know, that everybody played a role in some complex way, that the system that should have been there, that had been dismantled by the time he was ill, was no longer there, that changes in law had resulted from changes in the culture and in turn reinforced changes you know, led to more laws. You know, Michael, when he was in the halfway house, used to say to me, he was the McMurphy character, a reference to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which came out when we were in junior high school, I think. Um, and the thing about McMurphy is that he's not mentally ill in the, the movies based on the book. But I mean, in other words, the emblematic person in a movie about the horrors of being in a mental institution is not in fact ill. He's like a Kafka character. He just woke up there one day. And so the whole, and and he's identified with that person. So it, it's not as if anyone told him he wasn't ill, but it was easy to forget. And maybe it even seemed like a kind of kindness. The psychiatrists caring for him, um, who were 
wonderful people had grown out of the 1960s world of community psychiatry, which they had contributed to. And for them, saving someone like Michael from the system was their real goal, which meant that his illness was almost secondary to that goal. That didn't mean they didn't know he was ill. They certainly didn't think he was going to kill the person he loved most in the world, as happened. But it did mean that they had there they had this sense that it was a terrible place to go as they often were partly for all those reasons um and so they um they felt it was necessary to kind of accommodate him people knew he had stopped taking his medication people knew that sometimes he wouldn't let his girlfriend in when she came back from work because he didn't recognize her or he thought she was an alien and so after and eventually that just overflowed and still up to that point he was delusional and those who knew and and were close understood but it's in, in the same way nobody allowed themselves to imagine that what happened was going to happen because it happens for a different reason uh i think than it happens when someone is just like a a killer who wants to kill someone uh he was fleeing for his life and he was arrested Oh, he was on the cover of every tabloid. So he went from being heroically profiled in the Times to being on the cover of the New York Post under a headline bigger than the one over Son of Sam, which he and I had both, you know, been like watched unfold when we were growing up. And it was as if you could watch before your eyes the de- the demonization or the elevation. It was like very hard to hold anything in between, you know. And um, and that's what was so painful about it. Like when the son of also, by the way, when son of Sam was arrested, he was an unmedicated, severely ill person with schizophrenia and paranoia. Um, But people spoke of him as if he were a devil and he wanted to hire an exorcist to write his memoirs. And it was as if we were back before the days of Dorothea Dix in the 19th century, when it was seen as something demonic. How had we allowed it to get to that point out of fear of hospitalizing someone when they really needed it? Or the possibility of suggesting that someone who doesn't know he's ill might need medication, the way someone who's unconscious in insulin shock might need to go to the hospital even without asking. So I kept trying to fit these things together, which almost felt like a form of madness all on its own, Mm. you know? And so what happened was that people thought they were honoring his autonomy, but in fact, they were kind of facilitating his illness and they were, and putting his, to say putting his fiance girlfriend to live with him at risk is the wrong way to put it. His college roommate, a guy I really loved who I wanted to talk to, but who had died young, but I talked to his wife and I talked to his brother told, uh, had died, um, at the age of 49 and on his deathbed died weeping for Carrie. That's the name of the woman Michael killed and saying to his brother, we all, all we did was worry about Michael getting his due, being accommodated, not losing his place in the world. We forgot. And he meant him included himself very powerfully forgot about her. And I, it's important just as it's important that you said people often forget jail is the alternative or slow motion death, not, an autonomous lifestyle choice. And it's it's important to be honest. People should argue, feel free, I think, to argue for anything and everything, but not to pretend that you're arguing for something that doesn't apply. Mm. And I myself was so mortified and appalled that I had known so little. And now, of course, I realize how omnipresent it is. I mean, only 1% of the population gets schizophrenia but there's a way in which it looms very large larger than it needs to if it's allowed if it's ignored entirely no services you don't get reimbursed medicaid doesn't cover people in long-term care mental health facilities in other words the largest mental health care provider in the country doesn't reimburse states in for you know for someone who's in a state hospital so states just started releasing everybody and that's a thing that can be fixed but I've got no prescriptions. To me, this brings up a really a, a really profound ethical conundrum that I, I have thought a lot about and you bring up in this book, which is the the question of whether or not someone, say in the case of Michael, should be forced against their will to take medication or to be put in a place in which he would not be 
capable of harming someone as if that's a place that exists. And I think what you talk about is that it really doesn't. But like, I think I know a lot of states right now are grappling with this question of whether or not we should force people to take medications. And I think this is a very serious like civil rights question. And it brings up a lot of big questions about what we know about how the mind works and someone's agency and freedom. And 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 I wonder kind of how you now fall in that argument uh, after all of this writing and research. Well, uh, for, I think it's a great question. Many people like Michael, who was persuaded to sign himself in, once presented with the possibility of being hospitalized or taking medication, will choose to take medication. And if they're medicated, they may decide that they want to continue it. Not always. But if someone is a, dan is da a danger, harm to himself or others, who doesn't know he's ill and cannot care for himself, that seems to me that basic compassion would require at least some form of care. A lot of care can now be in the community, but it doesn't happen by itself. And the idea that communal care is just a kind of phrase you invoke and it happens was net, was disingenuous. People said, well, now there's medication. They didn't understand, A, how you know hard it can be to take these medications and how people don't like to comply with them. And if when you take them, you're well, you might not think you're ill. I mean, it's the most paradoxical and difficult. The only thing I'd say is, as you say, mentioning jail, be honest about the fact that Los, An that Los Angeles jail is the biggest mental health, you know, uh, institution in California, you know, if not the country. Some have so, said two thirds, maybe up to two thirds of inmates suffer from some form of mental illness, I've heard. Right. You know, Michael was consulted as a kind of expert after he'd been profiled in the Times and and inspired many people. The Times did an article about a medical student who had stopped taking his medication. He had bipolar disorder. He had become what the doctors at the medical school considered dangerous or volatile. He shoved a student and they hospitalized him. It was it, it wound up being for five weeks. It actually might have been for less. It had to do with the schedule of the hearing. Um, his family didn't intervene. It was from a very wealthy family, partly because it's possible they wanted him to be medicated. But in any case, Michael's comment was he lost five years of his uh, five months. Excuse me. He lost five weeks of his life and maybe his career. And what I say is who among his friends would not have wanted Michael to lose five weeks of his life if it could have saved his life and Carrie's life? And I, I, that doesn't make up anyone's mind for them, but I do think it's important for people to be honest about what they're choosing. Thomas Zaz, who wrote a famous book in the 60s, The Myth of Mental Illness, an enormously destructive book simply because it denied the organic biological component of severe brain illness, of mental illness. He defended the right of that woman who I mentioned before, who froze to death on the street as a civil liberties matter. And what he said is this, that basically it was a violation of her civil liberties. Um, and although he said her inability to take care of herself was pathetic, it would have been tragic to hospitalize her. But what's interesting is even people who, you know, people who defend free speech correctly point out, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater uh, unless there is a fire. They often leave that part out. But what if there's only a fire in your mind? Would anyone think that that would be a valid defense of yelling fire. You know, Michael thought his classroom was on fire at one point. He left because he was taking medication and he wasn't sure there was a fire. But if someone isn't um, able to discern what's real and what's not, unless you live in a world in which reality is merely an, another narrative and the very notion of a consensus reality is, is, a, is, is non-existent, which is what I sometimes felt reading Foucault, it seems hard to to find the solution simple. Because if you don't live in a world where truth is discernible in some form, then there's no medicine. There's no history. There's no morality of any kind. And I don't mean to sound preachy, though. I know it does, because I know it's the hardest decision in the world. But I've simply talked to too many people who were caring for someone and who had no... Forget deciding you want to do it. Like those, like those families in the, in, in the 60s who uh, were mentioned in that memoir who had to call the cops and hope for the best. You know, these were poor black people in inner city Baltimore in 1968. They had to call the cops in the hope that their floridly psychotic child 
you know, would be taken to a hospital, I mean, would be taken to jail without getting shot along the way, even if they were violent. And actually, it happens even today quite a bit. The police are left to care for people who are psychotic. So just all I would say about it is that it is a really difficult issue, but assisted outpatient treatment nowadays is a way of getting people care without being hospitalized, without, you know, you can't medicate anybody who's not against their will unless they're in a hospital. But it's it's just, um, it's it's worth asking as you did compared to what. And can I just ask, uh, how is Michael? Where Where is he? Can you just Give us a very quick update as to his, his he state. Was, he was found not guilty by reason of insanity, hmm. which is saying a great deal because it's very rare. And the person who essentially determined his state had been retained by the DA who very much wanted to prosecute him. Uh, and who had and the psychiatrist, Park Dietz, had found um, Jeffrey Dahmer sane. You know, so it says a lot that he it had to determine the state Michael was in at the time that he... Hmm killed Carrie. And that meant two years of forced medication because he wasn't going to take his medication. And that's the other thing. The state was willing to hospitalize him and medicate him so that he could stand trial for murder. That was the plan. But in the process, he, he was medicated in order to be present in the courtroom. But the person retained by the district attorney found that he was not responsible. And so he has been in a forensic psychiatric hospital, which is a maximum security hospital, basically. It used to be called, those used to be called hospitals for the criminally insane. And, you know, his, he's still ill. But of course, if you imagine um, what, what would it mean to come to terms with the fact that you killed the person you love most in the world? You're all, what's your alternative? Not living inside of reality. And so I don't, I don't know where he is now. And people's states change all the time. That's the nature of illness. And it was, you know, thought uh, schizophrenia used to be called dementia praecox, like premature dementia, as if it only went in one direction, partly because people lived longer and they inhabited psychiatric hospitals and they really did go in one direction. Anything is, of course, possible. But he lives in the aftermath of this extraordinary calamity. And of course, Harry's family lives in the aftermath of a calamity in which they don't have their daughter. I've been speaking with Jonathan Rosen. He's the author of the new book, The Best Minds, The Story of Friendship, Madness, and the Tragedy of Good Intentions. Jonathan, thank you for sharing this kind of extraordinary story and, and body of research. We really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for giving me a chance. Well, that's it for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody, and now we'd love to hear from you, particularly any of you who have any thoughts on this show or what it's like working with those who have schizophrenia. You can find a link to our Facebook group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you soon.